This chapter 15, and um, we're going to be studying today verses 7 to 21, uh, Genesis 15 verses 7 to 21, as we consider today God's covenant with Abram, God's covenant with Abram. All of us know what it is like to need some reassurance at times. Uh, boys and girls, I'm sure some of you, when you were very little and mum or dad was putting you to, to bed, uh, maybe you asked them a few times, will you, will you leave the light on outside the door or a nightlight in my room? Will you come and wake me up in the morning? What are we doing tomorrow? I know in our house we hear those sorts of questions, sometimes very frequently, because children sometimes need reassurance that everything is and will be okay. And it's not just boys and girls that need reassurance. Adults, mums and dads need it as well. And sometimes Christians need reassurance about all kinds of things. Reassurance perhaps about forgiveness. Am I really forgiven for all of my sins? Sometimes it's reassurance about heaven. Does heaven really exist? How can I be sure that I'll be there? What will it be like? Sometimes it's reassurance about gifts and a sense of calling. Do I have gifts? What are they? How am I supposed to use them in God's service? Reassurance. And as we saw last week and continue this week, we see Abram at this moment in his life in Genesis 15 needing assurance. He's really asking a very similar question today to the one that he asked last week. If you look at chapter 15, verse 2, last week we considered this together. Abram says to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And he says later in verse 3, you have given me no offspring. God had promised to give Abram offspring, but he hasn't yet given him offspring. And yet we saw as well that although Abram has this need of reassurance, he, he does also have trust in God. Uh, the word Lord that he uses there for God, Lord God, he says, uh, the word Lord means sovereign. And so he's recognizing that God is in control, that God is sovereign in his life. And yet he needs some reassurance. And we, we thought last week about the, the picture that God gave Abram to give him reassurance. He told him to look at the stars. And he said that his offspring would be like the stars, countless, innumerable. And that gave Abram a measure of reassurance about his offspring. But we see Abram needing further reassurance as we return to the passage this week. If you look at verse 8, look at verse 8. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That is, possess Canaan, the promised land. And so he's asked for reassurance about his offspring. And now he asks for reassurance about his land. And again, God has already made promises to Abram about the land. But Abram needs reassurance. And God is so gracious with Abram here. He doesn't say, look, Abram, I've already promised you these things. Just take it or leave it. I'm God. You're not. I'm all powerful. You're not. I've said I'll do this, so I'll do it. No, God doesn't take that attitude at all with Abram. God is gracious. God meets Abram's need to have further assurance. And he meets that need, friends, in the form of a covenant made with Abram. 
We thought about the whole matter of covenant in the autumn as we undertook together covenant renewal as a, con- as a congregation. And we thought about how a covenant is a solemn, sworn, binding agreement between at least two parties. There are blessings promised for keeping the covenant. There are curses, judgments, punishments promised for breaking the covenant. And covenants were very common in Abram's culture, that ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, Regardless of whether or not you believed in the God of Abraham, uh, people would make covenants with one another. Often if a, a ruler conquered a particular community or tribe or nation, he would enter into a covenant with that nation about what he demanded of them, what their obligations were and what he would do for them in response Ordinary men and women, neighbours together would enter into covenant if they were transferring people or property from one to the other. A covenant was the most solemn, serious commitment you could make. I promise to do this, sometimes on pain of death. And this is what God does here in Genesis 15 for Abraham. He says, Abram, you can trust me this much This is how committed I am, Abram, to seeing through the promises I have made for you. I'm willing to enter into a covenant with you. And of course, hopefully, partly because of the series we had in the autumn, I hardly need to remind you today that this is still how God deals with men and women today. We believe wholeheartedly in this as Reformed Presbyterians in covenant theology. That God still deals with men and women covenantally that he has offered to us a covenant and that he has given us blessings and promises and reassurances in that covenant that covenant that is provided for us and embodied for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ so as we look at this covenant that God made with Abram today we're going to see parallels in the covenant that God has made with us in Jesus Christ so how does God Give Abram assurance with this covenant today. Well, three ways that he does that. And first of all, the first way might sound a little surprising or a little strange. uh, But the first thing is that God's covenant here with Abram, it provides a picture of suffering. It provides a picture of suffering. God has already given Abram the picture of the stars and said, "Your, your offspring will be like the stars. He provides another picture Uh, Later on here, as he makes this covenant with Abram, and it's a much more graphic and gruesome picture than looking up at the stars. If you look at verses 9 to 11, God commands Abram to sacrifice a number of animals. And if you notice, God only tells, it's only explicit in the text that God tells Abram to bring these animals to him. The whole matter of Um, sacrificing them and cutting them in half. Abram seems to know to do that of his own accord. This was just standard practice, and we'll think more about that later on, uh, for the most serious and solemn of covenant commitments. And so God tells Abram to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And these are all animals, by the way, that are listed later on in the Old Testament, the law of Moses These were animals that would regularly be used in worship and sacrifice by Abram's descendants, the Israelites. 
And so Abram cuts them in half and he lays the halves of the pieces opposite each other. We'll think more about that later. And we're also given this detail in verse 11. The birds of prey start circling over the carcasses and Abram has to fend off uh, these birds of prey. Now what does all of this mean? (laughs) Well we'll deal with the main point of it all uh, shortly. But on a basic level, friends, here we have a picture of suffering, of sacrifice, of life given up and poured out. And a picture of enemies wanting to prey upon the suffering of others. And God explains this picture to Abram more in verses 12 to 13. Look what he says. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, so you will have offspring. Again, God repeats it. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be preyed upon and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And so here is a glimpse of the future. Here is a prophecy from God. Abram will have offspring. And of course what God's talking about here is the experience of the Israelites suffering in the land of Egypt for 400 years before finally being brought into the promised land of Canaan. Now I would imagine this isn't at all the kind of reassurance that Abram was looking for. He slaughters several animals for sacrifice. He fights off the predators. And then God says, yes, you will have offspring and they will suffer. And it will take a long, long time for them to enter into this promised land that I've given to you. That's what God is saying to Abram. It's going to take a long, long time for these promises to be fulfilled. And there are a few hints in this chapter that the experience of Abraham himself is a sort of a parallel to what his offspring will one day experience. Not that Abraham ever became a slave to anyone, but if you look back at verse 7, just look at verse 7. God begins this dialogue with Abraham by saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. You compare the language there to what God would say many years later to his descendants, the Israelites, at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Almost identical language. Saying, I am the God who has chosen you. I am the God who has called you. I am the God who has had a plan for you from the very beginning. And although they would suffer much, before eventually they would, however, arrive back in the land promised to Abram in the first place. And so friends, God does reassure Abram, you will have offspring, they will inherit the land. But what God is also saying to Abram is, my promises take time. Sometimes we're made to wait for them. And to some degree or another, we may be called to suffer As we wait for them to be fulfilled. Now you might hear these things this morning and think well what's reassuring about that? 
That's not exactly the boost to my faith that I was hoping for as a new week begins. Well, maybe so, but is there not comfort to take, friends, from knowing that in our suffering and in our waiting, God is still sovereign? That's the underlying point uh, being made to Abram again. How did Abram address his doubts and questions to God? Verse 8. O Lord God. In other words, sovereign God. The God who had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Before Abram knew anything about this God. Before Abram had faith in him. God had chosen Abram since before the foundations of the world. And friends, there is immense comfort to take from knowing that if we find ourselves waiting and waiting and waiting like Abram did, or if we find ourselves suffering and suffering and suffering like Abram's descendants would do, that our God is still sovereign in the midst of our waiting and our suffering. You're going to suffer whether you have faith in God or not. There are some kinds of suffering that are unique to Christians, but everyone in this world is suffering to some degree. But those who suffer in faith know that there is purpose and that we have promises to hold on to and that eventually the waiting and the suffering does and will come to an end. Too many Christians and too many churches ignore the large portions of God's word which clearly teach us to expect suffering in the way of salvation. No one embodies that more clearly, of course, than Abraham's greatest descendant, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thought about this in our series, our evening series in Philippians over the last two studies that we've had in Philippians about, in Philippians 2, how Christ humbled himself and was willing to leave the comfort of heaven and come down into the suffering of earth and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says. The writer of the Hebrews says that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Friends, if that's the, the way our Savior has lived, why would we expect to be any different for us? Christ taught his followers in the world you will have tribulation, John sixteen thirty eight. Jesus' apostles faithfully preached that message. Acts fourteen twenty two tells us that when Paul was returning on one of his return legs of a missionary journey, and he went back and visited the various churches that he planted, what were what were some of the things that Paul made a point of emphasizing to the churches that he planted? Acts fourteen twenty twenty two, that through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. These baby Christians, these baby churches, what does Paul want to say to them? Oh, it's going to be a great life. Oh, everything's going to be fantastic for you going forward. It's just going to be all hunky-dory now that you're Christians. No. Through many tribulations, difficulties, sufferings, we enter the kingdom of God. That's the Christian life. A lot of waiting, sometimes a lot of suffering. But we wait and we suffer assured by the sovereign plans of God. 
Maybe you've had the experience of paying for something and it not meeting your expectations. This ticket will get you into all these places, definitely, except for X, Y, and Z. This voucher guarantees you money off any purchase except for X, Y, and Z. Had you read the fine print, the terms and conditions, you would realize that there were some hidden costs that the seller wasn't upfront about. Friends, there are no hidden costs with following Christ. He's been very clear right from the start. In fact, you remember those passages where it almost sounds like he's trying to put people off following him. He says, count the cost. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. We live in a world still scarred by sin. We live in a world where our enemy is at work against us. We ourselves are still a bundle of inconsistencies and worries. All of that means we are going to suffer. But we can do so reassured by the sovereign covenantal purposes of God who has called us and who promises to us a glorious future. So God's covenant provides a picture of suffering. But secondly, God's covenant provides a picture of salvation. God's covenant provides a picture of salvation. God has told Abram that it will be a long time before his descendants truly lay claim to the promised land. But it will happen. Look at verse 14. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Again, that's talking about the exodus. That's God here promising the plagues and the punishment that would come to Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. They'll be rescued. They will come out of Egypt. And we know, of course, that that did come to pass. And indeed, it's remarkable just how precisely it came to pass. And notice here, friends, God tells Abram that his descendants will come out with great possessions. Verse 14. Well, just listen to the words of Exodus 12, verse 35. Exodus 12, 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Something maybe we we don't think much about, the fact that the Israelites came out of Egypt weighed down by as much Egyptian gold and silver and clothing and possessions as they could carry. God literally just put it into their hands. And again, there's a bit of a parallel with Abram because you remember Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis foolishly and mistakenly went down to Egypt, got himself in difficulty, and yet he came out with more wealth and possessions than he had had when he went down in the first place. And eventually... It will be the same for Abram's descendants. A new generation of Israelites will arrive in the promised land. Their glorious inheritance weighed down by the blessings God has given to them. Look, down, look on down at Genesis 15 verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the borders that God describes there of the promised land are huge. Uh, This is a vast swathe of land. And it would take until perhaps the days of Solomon 
many hundreds of years after Abram, of course, it would take until then for the land of Israel to actually extend as far as this. And there might even be a sense of, uh, of uh, poetry or hyperbole almost in, in God's speech here concerning the borders. But nonetheless, the point is made that they will enjoy vast swathes of territory far beyond what Abram has in his possession when God gives him this promise. But it will be the possession of his descendants. There's also a personal promise to Abram here. If you look at verse 15. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Abram, as well as Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and King David and others in the Old Testament, they all died very old men. Uh, you'll know perhaps the phrase that's used, they died full of years, a good old age and full of years. And again, that was a sign of God's blessing on them. In the Old Testament era, God gave his people pictures of blessing, things that they could see and grasp. And one of those pictures was long life. To his faithful servants. And God says to Abram. You're going to enjoy long life. And when you die. You have nothing to fear. You'll die in peace. Your soul will go to rest. To, to, to everlasting life. And his body of course we know. Waiting for resurrection. Jesus said in John 8 verse 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. My salvation, my resurrection. He saw it and was glad. And so the Lord Jesus confirms for us that Abraham indeed died a believer. With the same faith and hope and the same salvation that we have. The the salvation of resurrection and everlasting life and perfect peace. Of course friends, this doesn't mean that Christians today are guaranteed long life on the earth. Many godly people have died very young. But nonetheless, in Christ, we ultimately grasp the same fundamental covenant promises that God made here to Abraham. Salvation, a a promised land, an end to suffering, peace for our souls, life everlasting. See, as a Christian waits and as a Christian suffers, we do so in faith. Knowing that like Abraham we will when we die. Our souls will go to be with our fathers in the faith. Our souls will be safe with Christ. Waiting for the resurrection of our bodies. Waiting for our inheritance. Our promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. Which will put the promised land of Canaan in the shade. Always want to emphasize that it's not just heaven that we're looking forward to. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Physical life. Everlasting life. Work and play and worship in a beautiful new world. That's what we ultimately have to look forward to. That is our salvation fully realized. Abraham had to look ahead in faith to a time when God would secure offspring and possessions and land for him. And we in a sense still look ahead as well. Christ, We can look back to Christ's finished work at the cross and at the empty tomb. But we also look ahead in faith just as Abraham did. We look ahead to resurrection. To eternal life. Life to the full. In the new heavens and the new earth. 
Abraham went down to Egypt and came back to the promised land. The Israelites eventually would go down to Egypt and suffer and come back to the promised land. And the Lord Jesus not only went down to Egypt when he was a little infant in his parents' arms, but he went down to the earth from heaven's throne and suffered and came back to heaven, the true and everlasting promised land. And like Abraham and like the Israelites, Christ went back to heaven better off, wealthier in every sense of that word than when he left because he had gained salvation. He had defeated death. He enjoyed resurrection, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And so as you wait, friends, and as you suffer, are your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, our covenant keeper, our covenant representative? The Apostle Paul, who knew all about suffering of every kind, nonetheless, he could say in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, don't, take, don't think he's speaking lightly here. This is a man who was beaten for his faith. This was a man rejected by his peers. This was a man worn out and exhausted by his physical exertions and taking the gospel across the earth. He says it's not worth comparing with the glory that is still to be revealed. Losing a friend who despises you for your Christian faith, that's suffering. Losing a job because of your commitment to Christ, that's suffering. Suffering bodily weakness and illness, the bereavement and loss of loved ones or treasured possessions or anything else, friends, that's all waiting and that's all suffering. But Paul says it's nothing compared to the glory the full experience of salvation that is still to come. You have faith in these covenant promises. In these days of doubt and difficulty that you may be passing through, be reassured afresh today by the covenant promises of God. So God's covenant provides a picture of suffering. God's covenant provides a picture of salvation. Thirdly and finally, God's covenant comes at a price God's covenant comes at a price. Mentioned earlier, a covenant is a solemn commitment, perhaps even a a promise made on pain of death. And that's why God commands Abram here to slaughter these animals and and then lay the halves of the carcasses opposite each other. Again, this is something very common in Abram's day. This isn't just something that God commanded Abram to do. This is something that many people would have done. They slaughtered the animals, they laid the pieces opposite each other, and then what they would do is they would walk between the pieces together. The parties to the covenant, they would walk between them. And what they were doing was they were saying, should I fail to keep my covenant commitments, then may I become like these dead animals. In other words, I take these covenant commitments on myself on pain of death. And we have an example of that in Jeremiah 34. You don't need to turn to it. You can read it later if you wish. But Jeremiah 34, in the midst of a a judgment discourse, uh, God says this through his prophet. He says, The men who transgress my covenant 
and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two pieces and pass between its parts. All the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. So God is referring to some other situation there. He's saying these people made a covenant with me. They walked between the dead pieces and they've broken the covenant and they deserve to die. But I want you to notice, friends, this is crucially important. Who passes between the pieces here in Genesis 15? Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Smoke and fire in the Old Testament almost always accompany the presence of God. They symbolize the presence of God. You remember how God would lead his people through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud or smoke by day and fire by night. Remember what happened at Mount Sinai as God came down to give the Ten Commandments to the people. Darkness, cloud, fire descended on the mountain. God's holy presence. Friends, here it is God himself, the presence of God that passes between the dead meat. God takes on the commitment of keeping this covenant, including the curse of death if the covenant is not kept. And yet we're told he makes the covenant with Abram. Abram is a party to this covenant, but he doesn't take on the obligations of the covenant. Only God does. Where's Abram? Whilst the fire pot and the torch pass through the pieces. What's Abram doing? Look back at verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram. The word there in the original for deep sleep is very rare. It's the same word used back in Genesis 2.21 when Adam was sleeping while God makes Eve from his rib. This is a sleep induced by God. So whilst God takes upon himself the obligation of keeping this covenant, the curse if the covenant is broken, Abram is passive. Abram's in a deep sleep. And that's by God's design. God chooses to bear the curse, the price for this covenant being breached. Some of the commentators at this point make some very strange statements. One of them said, it seems impossible that God could be suggesting that he himself will pay the penalty for breaching the covenant. Well, of course, it is impossible for God to breach the covenant. God never goes back on his word. Everything that God promises to do, he does. But his people do breach the covenant. Abram was not a perfect man. We'll get a very painful and cringy reminder of that next week, God willing, in chapter 16. Abram's descendants, the Israelites, were not perfect men and women. They were silly and stubborn and idolatrous. And we are not perfect people either. None of us keep the law of God, the the covenant of God. These great promises, resurrection, heaven, salvation, we've done nothing to deserve them. What we deserve is 
the punishment and judgment for breaking the covenant. We're sinners, each and every one of us, liars, adulterers, thieves. We are selfish. We are murderous in our thoughts, if not in our hands. And this holy God who spoke to Abram in smoke and fire and dreadful darkness, he could have nothing to do with sin and sinners. He hates sin. He promises Abram here in verse 16 that the sin of the Amorites, that's the the dwellers in Canaan, that their sin will eventually be judged, punished. That's what all of us deserve as well. Punishment for our sins. And yet, and yet, only God passes through the pieces. Only God takes on himself the curse of bearing the punishment for breaching the covenant. The question is, where or how has God done that? When or how has God experienced the curse of breaking the covenant? Well, of course, Paul tells us in the passage we read earlier, Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's through the coming of the Son of God that the curse of the covenant is dealt with and taken, friends. Ralph Davis says you can almost see in Genesis 15 the nail-scarred hands of the covenant God. That's how deep his covenant commitment goes. So what's the answer if we lack assurance today as believers? The answer is to once again look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at how much he was willing to do for you to receive life and salvation and resurrection in heaven. Yes, we have to wait. Yes, we have to suffer. Look how much more our Saviour has waited and suffered for you. We have a glorious future waiting for us, a promised land that will put Canaan in the the shade Your saviour has secured it for you. We deserve destruction and punishment. But instead our saviour has experienced punishment for you. God has done it all. Abram lies here and contributes nothing to his salvation. Likewise Paul says in Ephesians. God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. While we were still dead in sin. Salvation is of the Lord from start to end, the whole of it, so that none of us can boast in ourselves, but instead rest assured in the covenant of God's grace. And so friends, if we need assurance today, we need only look at the covenant promises of God secured for us by Jesus Christ, who has done it all for us to be saved. God's covenant provides a picture of suffering a picture of salvation and it comes at a price which Christ has paid in full. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Amen.